Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. What's going on, guys? Welcome to Real Vision's weekly AI Firehose, where we drink from the pounding stream of everything happening this week in the expanding field of AI. I'm Ash Bennington, joined, as always, by our resident AI expert, AI developer, Mikhail Voloshin. Mikhail, welcome. Great to be here as always, Ash. Uh, we've got a really exciting episode uh, with us today. We've got Tesla being sued. We've got DoorDash using AI for taking voice orders. Uh, and I'm gonna play with some stuffed animals. Mikhail, fantastic. Let's jump right in. I know there's some big stories out this week in this field. Um, yeah, the, By the way, first is that a, one- That's that not one... an AI cat, right? It is not an AI cat as far as I know. I've never looked inside, but I, I don't think any of us would enjoy that. That um, looks like a real tail. Is, however, uh, very eager to examine my new media rig and put her scent all over it, which will mess up my camera angles. So she's just going to stay right here for a second. <laughs> um, all right, Mikhail, let's jump in and start out with Tesla, because uh, this is the story that caught my attention. So... Um, Tesla is slated to appear in court this uh, this month and the beginning of next month uh, for a couple of driver fatalities uh, that occurred in 2019. Uh, one of the incidents involved uh, Tesla's self-driving autopilot-driven uh, car uh, driving straight off of a highway, leading to a crash that uh, killed uh, the driver and seriously injured two passengers. Uh, I know, what a great note to start an episode on. Um, but uh but listen, Tesla this is, is mirrors what a lot of people feel uh, about this space which is excitement enthusiasm but also tremendous concern uh, and when you hear a story like that it's very visceral it hits home you can see obviously uh, some of the downsides some of the risks of this technology absolutely and you know uh tesla is denying liability uh which is not surprising their their, their claim is quote uh there are no self-driving cars on the road today that's the official company line. And what they mean by right. that is that this is still prototype technology. The cars are not marketed as really being self-driving. Self-driving is just a term that we use to describe the cars, but Tesla insists that you always keep your hands on the wheel and that the driver still needs to intervene in case the machine is about to make a mistake. That's their just sort of- I mean, basically what Tesla is saying, their defense, uh, here, and just, this is just my interpretation of it, is that this is kind of just a beta test, right? That they're saying that this isn't really full self-driving car technology. You know, and it's, it's I'm sure, very material for this case in terms of their legal defense, uh, but kind of in another view, it also sidesteps the core question about where we're going to be uh, in whatever the number of years is, whether it's one, whether it's three, whether it's five, whether it's 10, uh, where we do have these full self-driving cars, you're not gonna be able to make that defense. And then this question uh, about who is liable uh, how it works 
what the rates of fatality are. I mean, I've, I've gone into this story quite a bit myself because I think it's just so, uh, well, terrible, obviously, on the one hand, in terms of the human tragedy, but also just such a, a harbinger of all the things to come. Like, here's an example of a question that I came up with thinking about this, Mikhail. If you have uh, a fatality rate that declines by 90% for self-driving cars, right? But the 10% of errors are errors that a human being would not have made. For example, a car that drives itself off a cliff for no apparent reason. How do you assess liability in that? I mean, who is liable? Is it the coders? Is it the entity that owned the code? I mean, it, it just gets really weird, really murky, uh, and really um, just interesting from the perspective of trying to assign liability and advance these technologies. So you're absolutely right that the rate, if the the rate actually has been going down, and my understanding, uh, and this understanding is backed up by uh, by some studies, uh, in particular uh, some driverless car statistics. Um, there's uh, on a mile by mile basis, Tesla cars are actually, or self driving cars in general, are actually much safer than humans, and that's a counterintuitive statistic. Uh, one of them, uh, one of those, uh, one of the contributing factors to that statistic is that self driving mode is usually engaged on the highway, where you can score the highest number of miles with the least amount of stuff happening. Um, highway driving is relatively simple compared to urban driving. Uh, the other consideration uh, is that, you know, people often forget uh, two things. One is that when you think about whether or not you, every human is going to assess themselves to be a safer driver than, than an automated, you know, than a machine, right? But right. that's only when you're thinking about yourself driving. You're not thinking about the moments of when you're behind the wheel, when you're not driving, which is, you know, when you space out to think about something at work, when like, you know, you get that little blip on your phone and like, even if you don't check the message, like that grabs your attention for a second, that kind of stuff, right? You're fiddling with the radio. I mean, it could be anything. Yeah. The um the other thing that uh, that a lot of people don't consider is that the car literally has senses that you don't. Um, you know, you have sight and you know and hearing that may be superior to the car in many ways, but you don't have lidar. Um, I mean, not yet. Um, the, uh, and if you do, please leave a comment below. Um, you don't. Uh, you know, the human body has. Uh, you know, it has. Uh, the ability to detect acceleration, but we don't have the ability to detect absolute road speed, which the, you know, the speedometer does. So the, we can feed that information back to the driver, but right now it's being integrated into the self-driving systems of these cars. And so the car is literally operating on a different, like, set of inputs that you are. Now, right. the... Um... And that's the reason for the enhanced safety. What you're saying is this idea that you get a broader sort of spectrum of data than human beings are able to gather through their five senses. But here's the paradox and the kind of thing that human beings are not very well suited to cope with, uh, which is this idea, if you have a 90% improvement in safety, um, you know, there is this joke in medicine uh, that things, the odds of something happening are either 100% or 0%. Either happens to you or it doesn't happen to you. Uh, and, uh, you know, if someone says, well, listen, uh, the fatality rate has been reduced by 95%. That's really cold comfort to you if it's your loved one, uh, your, you know, mother, father, child, brother, sister who gets killed in the accident involving the self-driving car that malfunctions. And these are just just really difficult problems uh, for, for fallible human beings like ourselves to get our heads around. You know, the the thing that really gets me about the ethics of self-driving cars is that it is a literal implementation of the trolley problem. Um, you know, it's... Tell, tell uh, people what the trolley problem, problem is for those yeah. who may not know. So it's an ethics problem. Um, 
I want to say composed by John Rawls in like the I want to say around the uh, early 60s or so. But the idea is that there's a trolley that is uh, well, it's a runaway train that's heading towards a that's heading on a track. And there's a person that's tied to the railroad track. Now, there's a switch on the track that allows the trolley to go off to a different direction. However, on that second track, there is also another person tied to that track because apparently the mustachioed mastermind villain has really been getting around. Now, the, the ethics problem is that you are standing at the switch of the track and you can choose to either uh, make the trolley go one way or the other way. Um, there's a lot of variations about like, maybe, you know, what if there's five people on the, uh, on, on the track? What if there's like two, uh, only two people, but like one is a baby and the other is like really, really old. Like, you know, what if, uh, one is some, you know, evil villain and the other is like some average Joe, that kind of stuff. Right. So right. the, um, uh, the ethics problem comes into the fa uh, comes into play when determining like, uh, whether or not the act of inter of intervention in and of itself, uh, like it warrants some kind of moral culpability. So, um, right. a, there's a another permutation of the problem. There's another permutation of the problem that's particularly sticky, which is uh, you have a, a track that splits left and right. There's one person tied uh, to each side, and then if you do nothing, if the train keeps going straight, it kills a hundred people. So basically, yeah. it forces you uh, away from this uh, idea of uh, kind of uh, benign neglect or not uh, making a decision. So you have to choose. And, and these are exactly, as you pointed out, I think, this is real life trolley problems that people have to code today, not in some ethics class, uh, not in a philosophical discussion, but they have to make these decisions about how, you know, when you have a car that's lost control, the brakes are failing. Uh, do you slam into another car? Do you slam into an area where there might be a pedestrian? So the um, the AI that drives uh, Tesla's is a hybrid neural network slash heuristic evaluation uh, system, which basically means that it uses neural networks for vision identification of objects. Like basically, it uses a neural network to be like, "That's a stop sign. That's a child. That's another car. That kind of stuff." Right. But then, having established like these are the these are these objects at these locations, uh, it uses. Uh, hard-coded heuristics with a scoring system to determine what action to take next. Um, and this gets into game players and, like, basically it tries to maximize its good score, minimize its, or, or minimize its cost, or however the, uh, however it's formulated. But the point is that it literally, uh, has a score for, like, uh, you know, this, th this action, you know, I am currently in this situation. If I take this action, it would lead to this outcome, which is you know, which has this badness rating. If I take this other action, it'll lead to this other outcome, which has this other badness rating, which means that it literally has to decide, uh, like if the car's brakes have failed and it can choose to either run over a pedestrian uh, in the intersection versus run versus slam into a nearby tree and kill the driver. It actually, there's actually hard-coded heuristics that Tesla's programmers had to sit down and evaluate in order to put numerical scores on the quality of one outcome over the other. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices, or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did 
was that series How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again, March the 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holes barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. And the key there that you just said is that the developers have to make those decisions for the waiting. Uh, this isn't something that machines are deciding for themselves. And that's, and that's why it's an intractable ethical problem. I think something that you mentioned earlier was uh, you said, you know, do you really want to be the last guy on the road uh, who's driving his own vehicle? That's a like that. That's something that I think about a lot, which is where like as time goes on, uh, and more and more vehicles are self-driving, are you going to be at an advantage or a disadvantage if you're the last human standing? Um, on right. the one hand, like you'd think you can weave and swerve around all of the, all of the other uh, vehicles on the road because you're willing to break rules that they aren't. Uh, but on the other hand, like does that increase your safety rating or not? Like, can you really say that you're a better driver if you're, uh, you know, if, if that's the way that you behave on the road? Yeah, we may reach a point uh, where we're going to have to explain to our grandchildren what a DWI was uh, and why it was something that was society looked down upon so much. It, it, you literally may reach a point where people can't understand uh, that human beings used to operate these vehicles. So I do want to interject with one other uh, point from abstract philosophy, uh, which was, I believe, a uh, it was a Socratic dialogue. I'm not sure if it was original to Socrates or if it came from Plato, but it but it presented a um, a thought problem that goes like this: Imagine uh, you're. Uh, imagine you're in some kind of personal danger for a little while, like there's some stalker that's chasing after you, and you borrow a weapon from a friend. Um, the danger pa you you have that weapon around for a while. Uh, the danger passes. The uh, and it's time to return this thing that you borrowed. Uh, the in the time that you had been borrowing this weapon, your friend whom you borrowed it from has gone stark raving mad uh, and is now liable to hurt someone else with this weapon. So the question becomes, is the uh, in more modern uh, uh, philosophical terms, is the which Kantian categorical imperative wins out? The obligation to return things that you borrowed or the obligation to not give weapons to crazy people? And I love this analogy for, or this thought experiment for self-driving cars, because it's not entirely clear to me whether the stark raving mad entity is the car itself, the human driver, or the programmer. Well, it's always humbling whenever you have a conversation about ethics to realize that Plato and Socrates got there first, and maybe Kant uh, did the elegant framing in a, in a more modern uh, sense. Listen, we've got a lot of stories that we want to talk about here. Uh, another one uh, that I'm really interested in getting to is DoorDash, the idea of DoorDash using automated AI to help process some of inbound ordering. Talk a little bit about this. It's an interesting one. So this is a great one from the point of view of talking about AI taking our jobs and ultimately whether or not that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, the... Uh, the system that DoorDash has just rolled out, and DoorDash, of course, is a food delivery system. Uh, for those who don't know, actually, Ash, have you ever used it? Um, it's uh, I've only used GitHub. I understand it's similar. 
Grubhub. Sorry, sorry, GitHub. Um, See, this is Git, what happens when you Grubhub. have a programmer on the show, right? It is not a code repository. It is a food repository, Mikhail. I mean, in the to pair, to misquote uh, Erasmus, when I have a little bit of money, I use it on code, and then if any is left over, I spend it on food. <laughs> it's a perfect Freudian slip. Uh, but anyway. DoorDash uh, is a food delivery system where you order online from nearby restaurants and they put a little uh, brown paper brown paper bag together for you and then a driver comes by, picks up the bag and drives it to your house. Dimitri, um, by the way, as a, I mean, Mikhail, by the way, as a Manhattan bachelor, do you think I have not used this service extensively? I'm just <laughs> useless in the kitchen. So without Grubhub, I'd starve to death. There's a reason why I asked you, um, and uh, you know when I when I was living in Manhattan, I depended on food delivery services just a little bit. Just, I'm, I'm just you know I I made use just a bit. So anyway, the um, there are t they found that about twenty percent of people can't stand ordering through the little menu system on the phone. About right. twenty percent of DoorDash customers prefer to just call the restaurant and put in their order, and this is particularly painful during the really highly slammed hours uh, from between about like five to eight or so. It's, it's a classic which is, example of what economists call a peak flow problem and they're very yeah, difficult to staff yeah. for because you've got the pig through Python effect. Exactly. It doesn't make sense for restaurant managers to hire extra people for uh it, it necessarily in all cases sometimes it does but often it does not unfortunately what this means is that these restaurants are shorthanded for taking calls during these peak hours and they found that upwards of 50 percent of phone calls are dropped which represents if you do the math that's 10 per, that, that's a 10 percent uh total revenue stream to these restaurants that's just getting a not that's just not manifesting it's a big hit. Um, just, it's just falling out of the sky for no reason because they can't exactly staff this. Yeah. So uh, they're turning this over to AI. They've got an AI oh. operator that answers the phone for the restaurant um, and says, you know, thank you for calling Mikhail's McBurgers. Uh, how can I, t you know, whatever. And the customer describes what they want to buy in plain English and they and the AI converts that into a set of orders uh, for the uh, for the cooks uh, and uh, and the rest of the order goes as if it would have uh, had the person ordered by the uh, by the phone app. Yeah, it's really interesting because you can start to think about some uh, very cool implementations on this stuff. Like, for example, Grubhub has all sorts of uh, different weightings that you can sort by. I want to optimize for delivery time. I'm really hungry. Uh, I want to get the best uh, top rated hamburger in New York City. I don't care if it takes an hour to get here. So you can just imagine having this kind of almost colloquial conversation with an agent. Listen, I'm starving. I need a hamburger. I know it's three o'clock in the morning. Just get me the fastest possible burger. I don't care if it's gourmet or not. Bring it to my apartment as soon as you can get here. From a developer standpoint, I'm going to be keeping my eye on uh, the on, on uh, interviews or like customer satisfaction surveys that uh, determine whether or not the people even know that they were talking to a bot. You think the technology has reached that point, uh, Mikhail, where people would not necessarily know that they were talking to a robot? It's a loaded question because a person who is slammed uh, and taking orders for the restaurant is not right. always functioning at their full cognitive capacity. So um, yeah. the question is point less... last week, 
you made this point last week where you kind of made this distinction between, you know, kind of almost the, the highest possible rate versus the actual rate uh, that people have when they're when they're doing a job. Meaning, uh, you know, if a human being, you told them dedicate all of your cognitive bandwidth to getting this absolutely right, might they perform higher? Sure. But in actual practice, the rate is lower. So the hurdle rate, so to speak, that the robot needs to meet declines. I, I thought that was just really interesting the way you framed that out. Bingo, bingo. Again, yeah. Did I uh, did I make the uh, uh, two hikers out running a bear analogy last week? <laughs> you you did. I don't know if you did that last week or if that was in one of our practice shows that we didn't publish. But go ahead, in case you. The basically two runners uh, come up to a uh, are, are hiking. Sorry, two hikers uh, come up to a bear in the woods, and the bear starts looking at them angry. And one of the hikers very quickly takes off his hiking shoes and starts putting on a pair of running sneakers. And the other hiker says, "What the heck are you doing? You're never going to outrun that bear." And the hiker <laughs> says, "I'm. Not, I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun you." Um, right. So the objective right. is not to get a perfect score. The objective is to get is to get a the objective of the AI is to get a score that is better than how the humans are doing. And the humans are don't always do as good as they think they do. So it's not as yeah, it's, it's way, not an impossible hurdle to reach. By the way, one of the places you can see this phenomenon is in birth control methods. Highest uh, actual rate uh, versus effective rate differ dramatically. Um, you know, I do want to mention about, uh, you know, more from a more abstract standpoint with regard to this, uh, what this spells for the future is that yeah. the application of the AI for this particular in this particular manner doesn't actually deprive any restaurants of any jobs. They're not firing people uh, who are just on the phone because they uh, instead they're augmenting uh, the th the availability of these restaurants uh, to take orders that are otherwise just being abandoned. So this is this isn't like uh, this isn't putting anybody out. Instead, it's actually facilitating economic activity. So that's pretty exciting. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Ah, mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com. We make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Mikhail, I could put on my cynical devil's advocate hat and add a single word to the end of that, which is today. Today, it's not displacing actual workers because it is, you know, fine. It's found this problem where you can basically optimize uh, by bringing in new technology. So you're not actually laying anyone off. But that is today. It's, it's pretty clear that you can see the direction. And I'm, I'm sure this is a topic that we're going to cover on many future shows, which is just the potential economic shock of what's going to happen uh, when we start to see this move through the labor force. I know some folks uh, made some comments in the YouTube last week about precisely that point. And, and hopefully we'll bring in some uh, some professional trained economists uh, and have this conversation with them and get their thoughts and get an understanding uh, from a different point of view from ours about how that's going to shake out. I think it'll be very interesting to talk to economists about this uh, because at, at the end of the day, here's the deal. Uh, I think that anybody, you know, all of us want to like, 
it, it progressed towards that like glorious Star Trek future of a post-scarcity society, right? But a post-scarcity society means that it means not only that material goods are u universally available through replicators, but it also means that labor is no longer scarce either. Um, right. Which means that the that, that these machines are capable of displacing the producers of labor just as surely as they're capable of producing of displacing the producers of goods. And what that means is that we all have infinite amounts of labor at our disposal, as well as, you know, replicated meals coming out of the little shiny box thing. And maybe at some point uh, in the distant or not too distant future, we end up in the matrix. Hey, Mikhail, let me ask you this in our very much non uh, you know, non world where we don't yet have uh, this uh, lack of scarcity. Let's talk about something that's really interesting, which is uh, ChatGPT, OpenAI producing an enterprise version of their application to help monetize it. I think it should probably surprise nobody that this was coming. Talk a little bit about what they're doing, what the use case is, and what the model is there. You know, I tried understanding how uh, ChatGPT Enterprise really differs from ChatGPT Plus, and I'll be honest, uh, it By doesn't way, seem like ChatGPT Plus is because I think this is something that both you and I pay for. Um, I use ChatGPT Plus pretty uh, pretty ubiquitously. It allows for you to get access to the latest trained models of uh, you know that OpenAI produces. It allows for it lets you run those models on slightly faster servers, which means that your throughput is um, like you 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 can get more words out of GPT faster. Um, it also allows you to use their plugin system that I demonstrated previously uh in one of the in one of our interviews where you can get you can have gpt sort of out outsource its processing to plugins such as wolfram alpha to get it to do better math or right. you can have it a little code runner to get it to actually like write little bits of code for itself and then run that run those uh, code snippets by the way i i should say in our demo of ChatGPT, you showed precisely some of the challenges that exist with the sort of math coprocessor units in the logical structure that is the large language model. GPT is a language model, and that means that it can't do math. The an the analogy that I gave uh, in I think our third interview was that you can no long you can no more expect GPT to be accurate at math than you can expect Excel to work as a spell checker. <laughs> so there um so uh with plugin architectures you can get gpt to do a little bit better at that kind of thing now the, uh openai just unveiled gpt enterprise chat gpt enterprise which basically lets an organization buy an entire block of access to gpt plus essentially to hmm. a to its entire staff it also lets you lets the organization create uh, certain chat templates that might facilitate more conversations along the lines of what exactly it is that the organization deals with. So for example, if the organization is a marketing agency and writes a lot of marketing copy, then they can precede their organization's edition of ChatGPT with, uh, with questions that might help people uh, write better ads. They also give additional data privacy guarantees because uh, a lot of people who would otherwise use ChatGPT for business are apprehensive to do so because they know right. that all, yeah, because yeah. It, they don't want it to be used as training data. Yeah, that makes perfect Here's... sense. Uh, but we don't yet have true customization 
by enterprise or by organization uh, with this new enterprise software. Is that correct? Not really. You can use fine tunings, uh, which allow you to recalibrate the uh, weights of the neural network for your own, per, uh, you know, for your own specific needs. But there, uh, the setup for fine tuning requires a bit of technical acumen, and right. it's also really not cheap. Now, here's the thing that I want to emphasize about this release of GPT Enterprise Edition. It's very to me anyway this might be a controversial stance but it's pretty obvious to me that the only reason OpenAI is doing this is because they're trying desperately to find some way to get gpt into the black a lot of right. viewers might not know this or at least uh you know we I, I believe we discussed this last week but gpt or OpenAI is losing a lot of money um they uh Right. Uh, their revenue in 2022 was only 30 million dollars, which sounds like a lot, but their costs ran into the r ran into half a billion. <laughs> yeah, uh, on paper, uh, just the cash flow statement, not a great business. Obviously, uh, the perception out there is that this technology is truly groundbreaking uh, and therefore will advance in ways. And, and by the way, this is a very uh, well trodden Silicon Valley paradigm, which is you, you lose money, you get adoption, you get a huge user base, and then you figure out how to monetize it later. As long as the functionality is there, as long as the adoption rate is there, so goes the thesis, uh, this is something that can be monetized later. Uh, but it really is something that's incredibly interesting. And at some point, you have to think that these are going to have to become cash flow positive businesses. They're going to have to generate free cash flow. Uh, otherwise, maybe, you know, the economic model needs to be rethought a little bit. You know, there's a um, there's a specific archetype to this uh to this entire development that i'm reminded of uh the inventor of movable type johann gutenberg uh you know created this civilization changing invention right uh, he died penniless and forgotten in some tiny little village in southern germany uh without ever being able to profitably capitalize on his invention um he printed a bunch of Bibles. The Gutenberg Bible, of course, is very famous. I think he printed a total of like 300 of them or something. Um, but the but he just couldn't move product. Uh, and right. he had to return right. the loans that he had made for uh, building his machine and renting out his workshop and, and uh, running his workshop. And his creditors ended up uh, <clears throat> acquiring his publishing house. And he never like he... he like he, he was never financially successful with it. Yeah, it's an incredible story. By the way, I'm sure Silicon Valley VCs on Sand Hill Road now are saying, you just, you needed us. We would have made it all better for you. I'm sure. Mm. Um, so the, you know, uh, this does sort of once again drive home the reminder that like others will rise to the occasion if, uh, you know, op if OpenAI doesn't eventually uh, manage to sustain itself. Uh, somebody's going to acquire GPT, probably Microsoft, um, and there will be other contenders uh, by Facebook, by Google, by Amazon right. um, that will, you know, by Microsoft, by Apple, that will uh, provide LLMs. So, you know, this is just like emphasis of the fact that this field is just on the cusp of absolutely exploding. Okay, Mikhail, and to borrow from Monty Python, and now for something completely different. Mikhail, what the hell are WUGs? Uh, well, <clears throat> I wasn't gonna, like, I was just gonna show you one at a time. <laughs> this. 
By the this way, is a if bug. you're listening to this podcast, we had about 10,000 people listen to the podcast uh, last week. So Mikkel is holding up a, a little blue bird, it looks like. Is it a bird? It's a... It's a stuffed plushie that uh, my better half Amanda spent a day making. Um, and yeah, it looks like a little like a little blue Easter peep. So this is a wug. Yes, it does. That's exactly what it looks like. Here comes another one. Now there are two of them. Yeah, there are two. Wugs. They're wugs. Exactly. Um, now the, this and I'm I'm holding up a much smaller little baby version of it. This is a young baby wug. <laughs> what would we call this? Like a I don't know, like a wugette, a wug. Sure. <laughs> and uh, there there wugito. is no right answer, and that's wugito. the point. If we, if we were speakers yeah. of Spanish, it would be wugito. Um, the answer that's listed in the book I'm about to cite is wuglet or wuggling. I believe wuggling. Okay, here's one, Ash. <laughs> They're just uh, adorable, and, by the way, if you're listening yeah. to this on a podcast. Here, um, here's one, Ash. Uh, what do you call a facility that that hatches and raises wugglings? Uh, a wuggery? Oh my god, you got it on the first try. That's is amazing. That right? Is that the right answer? Yes! That oh is the list. So these are a set, these are a bunch of non oh 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 sorry I forgot. Um, this little woggling is about to fleeb. Would you like to see it fleeb? I I think so. It will now fleeb for you. <laughs> uh, for those that are listening, I'm just rotating it in my hand like turning uh, it around, around and around. So, <laughs> what would you say that this that this woggling is doing right now? I I would say it's it's about to get us a, a psychiatric check. Well, it is it is fleebing and yesterday it fleebed. Um so look, uh what a, these are a bunch we of promise. nonsense words. We're work. going to explain this complete insanity shortly. <laughs> we have not um, totally lost our minds. These are a set of nonsense words uh that date back to a linguist and psychologist named uh Jean Burko Gleason back in 1958. Okay. And they were given to a, a, the little exercises that I just gave you were given to a bunch of preschoolers and kindergartners uh to see whether or not they would all come up with common answers and whether or not the common answers that they came up with were the same as the answers that adults would come up with. Hmm. So th this was a really interesting exercise in language acquisition because prior to that, prior to these experiments, it wasn't entirely clear that a student, uh, you know, that a child didn't learn language simply by rote memorization. Um, but these are words that they could not have possibly memorized because they were words that, uh, that, that Gleason had just made up. And there's no such thing as a right answer, because, again, this is just stuff that Gleason made up. But she did establish that the answers that adults came up with would be the same answers that children would come up with as well around age four or five or so. Now, I want to answer two, uh, two obviously raging questions. One, why am I talking about this now? And B, why am I talking about this at all? Um, the, the reason I'm talking about this... Excellent questions. Yeah, excellent questions, Miguel. Um, the reason I'm talking about this now uh, is because there's been a lawsuit in the last uh, couple of years over the use of wub of wugs uh, in uh, like as a commercial pro property. Okay. Um, 
uh, Gleason has recently uh, written a children's book uh, in which she's trying to monetize on the, you know, on her invention of these little guys. And unfortunately, in the 60 years since her original experiments, uh, she's um, uh, like the, the, the WUG has become a mascot of linguists. And the uh, and so there's a lot of other products that are already monetizing this little image. Uh, I feel that I feel we're probably safe to use it because we're discussing it for academic purposes and like you know educational. And we're like saying like you know this comes from John Burko Jean Burko Gleason. Please go buy her book. Um, but the uh, but the point is that um, the uh, the they've been these little obscure nerd mascots have been in the news lately. The and reason why it's relevant all of this relate to AI because it lends because it sheds some significant light on how large language models work and how they mimic the operation of the human brain. The mm. uh, the original experiments were instrumental in developing an understanding of uh, language acquisition in young humans, and what it drives home is that the is that the total amount of information that you need to have in order to have mastery of a language or at least operational capabilities of a language is much smaller than the total number of words in that language. You just right. need some vocabulary and then transformation rules. Now, here's the thing. Uh, the number of transformation rules to speak English is absolutely enormous, and linguists have tried to catalog these rules over generations and have ultimately failed. A neural network is very, very good at learning from example, and it is exactly the kind of AI that you throw at a problem when you want to say, there is some pattern in this data, but I'm, but I can't be arsed to articulate exactly what that pattern is. Can you please figure it out? Mikhail, let me, ask you a, let me ask you a question about this, because I find this absolutely fascinating. You know, while most uh, young people in college may occasionally have a flirtation with Noam Chomsky's socialism, I knew I was a dyed-in-the-wool capitalist, even as a young man. Uh, so I had a flirtation with his transformational generative grammars. The idea is that the human mind itself possesses these innate structures that allow us to create things like syntax, morphology, and the other transformations that we see in languages. How does that apply to computers which don't inherently possess those physiological wetware layers uh, of creating language transformation how does it how does the machine do it so i'm really glad you bring that up because Ch the uh, like chomsky's like innate grammar theory was very interesting but and was actually uh, proven in ha has actually proven instrumental in the development of artificial languages, specifically computer languages. Computer languages use something called context-free grammars for uh, you know for part like in order to be parsed into machine code and compiled into something that the uh, that the processor actually you know in into the ones and zeros that actually write on the processor. And so uh, Chomsky grammar Chomsky's theories of linguistics actually were really important in the development of you know compilers, but they have proven to have absolutely no basis in in how humans process language and they have no explanatory power in either language acquisition or in the describing of human capabilities. And the example that I always use with uh, Chomsky grammars is that I am perfectly capable of producing non-grammatical speech. Uh, company, uh, open AI, customers, calls during workload unveils. Um, yeah. 
or I you could just pick, pick some up random a, words. You could just pick up a contemporary sociology paper and get the same effect. Very good point. If, if Chomsky grammar, if Chomsky's linguistic theories were true, and there was innate circuitry in my brain that required me to emit language on a on some set of grammatical rules, I would have been unable to utter that sentence. Uh, so the um, so the well, truth well, why is, is that, that true. We have a sort of a biological. Uh, imperative that drives a certain type of gait in humans, but I can hop on one foot if I want to be really inefficient. <laughs> That's, I like that. Um, but your st your knee still bends the way that your knee bends. You know what right. I mean? Um, well, hopefully, so... Mikhail, every knee shall not knee shall not bend at the will of AI in the near future. We've covered a tremendous amount of ground here. Uh, obviously, a fascinating conversation. I always enjoy having these with you, Mikhail, because we get to go deep into some of these stories uh, that I think myself and most people would only be able to skim at the surface layer. You really provide this layer of context and depth uh, that we just wouldn't otherwise get. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave from this conversation, because we've covered a lot of topics here today. Go check out the work of Gene Burko Gleason uh, and... In particular, uh, check out this children's book, especially if you have kids or if you have friends that have kids. Uh, it could make a really great uh, present. It serves two purposes. One, three, honestly. Uh, one is that it's fun for the kids. Uh, two is that it's a. It ends up, uh, while being fun, it ends up being a really useful tool for parents to track the lingu the linguistic development of their own children. And three. Uh, Gleason has already planned for the ability to voluntarily from parents collect bulk data so that we can get massive amounts of information about how humans uh, acquire language and the rate at which we're, you know, at which children establish these milestones. I, I will add one more point to that, which is that um, we stand to gain a lot more understanding of how humans work by examining how language models acquire language than the other way around. In other words, if this uh, if these LLMs are in any way models of hu of human cognition, then we stand to learn about ourselves and about how we acquire language by watching what these models do. Not only will I imagine that we're going to learn about ourselves and how humans acquire language, I expect that that's going to be fed right back into the process of developing more sophisticated, more accurate, faster, better neural networks. Mikhail, just another fantastic conversation, man. I'm so excited about these. I'm I'm always thrilled to be here. We're at, we're absolutely on a technology roller coaster, and parts of it are scary, parts of it are exciting, but it's coming at us, and it's you know it, it, it's 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 worth. It's worth watching where this goes. Hey, listen, final thought to everybody out there. We very much believe in testing in production. We just jump out there, put these new shows out. This is a work in progress. We've got a lot of different ideas about how we can make this show better. Let us know what you think in the comments. Uh, you can always tweet to me at Ash Bennington uh, and to Mikhail as well. What's your Twitter handle now, Mikhail? Uh, it's I'm now at Mikhail Vol AI. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. Looking forward to having this conversation again next week. Have a great week, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. 
Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.